Available at farmnewsnow.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Agriculture through a modern lens. This is the AgriPod with Alice McFarland. On today's show, when it's time to spray crops either for weed or insect control, there is nothing more frustrating than poor weather, especially strong winds. At times, a farmer will make the decision to spray in those high winds, which can lead to spray drift damage on a neighboring field. That's when forensic agrologist George Luco is called in. George will talk about diagnosing spray drift damage and the process resolving the issue between the two parties involved. The University of Saskatchewan Crop Development Centre has hired a new director. Curtis Posniak has been a fixture at CDC since his arrival as a wheat breeder in 2003. During that time, he and his team have released 15 wheat varieties and also played an important role in the global effort to sequence the Durham genome. Curtis will talk about his new responsibilities and goals during his five-year term. When we come back, George Luco. Digging into the topics that matter to you. The AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. George Luco, a forensic agrologist, is our guest, and we're talking today about spray drift damage. So, George, when a producer is getting ready to head out to the field, what should be foremost on his mind before starting up that sprayer? Well, the first thing is you want to make sure you get the, the weeds, whatever you're targeting your herbicide on, you want to hit them. If it blows off, it doesn't help. But if it blows off and hurts the neighbor, well, that can be really bad. And a lot of farmers are going, okay, well, a few acres here or there isn't going to make that much of a difference. Well, it kind of does because just regular farm acres, well, if you hurt somebody's crop, it's hundreds of dollars an acre that you're hurting. But if someone's organic... And that now affects three years of the future because they have to take it out of organic production. Now you're talking about thousands of dollars per acre. And there are orchards out there, Saskatoon orchards and different things like that. That's tens of thousands of dollars per acre. And if someone has a yard site with shelter belt trees around it, well, you're looking at a minimum of $250 to replace a tree or more. And then I've dealt with nursery that have damages, and some of those are hundreds of thousands of dollars per worth of plants. So people really need to be aware of what's out there and, and uh, what type of damage they can be doing. And, and, and they have, the dollar figures can happen so quickly. So just explain what your process is when you arrive on site. Well, the first 15-minute consultation is, is free. So if they got a problem and they don't know exactly what to do, give me a call and we can, you know, go through what's happened. You know, if it's only like four feet on half an acre or half a mile, that's less than half an acre, Is that you're not probably going to get me out for something like that because, you know, my rates are, you know, $200 an hour plus mileage. Well, there's probably not that much damage there. But now, once it gets bigger, and, and right now it's really windy, and dead calm actually causes spray drift to go further because there's a lifting factor in there. And it happens in the morning, it happens in the evenings, and the spray, uh, whatever you apply, lift and move. And I've seen it move off a, a one-quarter section, move a mile. 
so two quarters over it was damaged by a spray application during an inversion. And now you're not talking, you know, 10 acres, you're talking two or 300 acres of damage, and you only sprayed 160 acres of a field. And all of a sudden you're doing damage to three times that size. Now, you use a number of different tools when you begin doing uh, an assessment. Maybe just explain the process once you get that call uh, to check for spray drift damage. You come out and, and do an investigation, so I call it scouting. Um, so we have GPS pictures, generally GPS the damage area. In drift, if it's pretty severe, you'll have a 100% loss area plus an area that's, you know, that gets gradually less. So we try to find the extent of the drift. A lot of times the crop gets delayed two or three weeks. So likely it's going to have to be harvested separate from the rest of the field. You know, and we'll try to come up with the direction, the wind. You know, there's a bunch of different things that we do, shadowing and, and fingering of drift that give us a, where the where the drift came from. Sometimes you may not know. Sometimes it's from two different fields. Uh, and sometimes I've seen fields where they got hit on one side, and as we're going along, we realize, no, the drift is getting worse going the other way, and realize they got hit from another side as well. So they thought they just got hit along the north, and they got hit along the north and the, the, the west side as well. And, you know, depending on the crop and sensitivity uh, to the different herbicides, it, it can do a significant amount of damage. So... We'll document it, then we'll try to figure out what the target yields were based on what the farmer's been doing in the field. Their agronomics are important, you know, what their you know, what the fertilizer they put on and figuring out what the field was capable of doing. Now if you don't have if you got a damaged area and an undamaged area, you can always compare the yield between those two. It does become a little bit more work at harvest time, but that's a very fair way of doing it. So it could be a season-long process to resolve a complaint. So this could go on until harvest, really, to see what the extent of the damage is? Yeah, well, a lot of times, some you know, if you get really good weather, things can improve. Uh, you know, uh, I've seen pea fields where they've got drift on them, and it's hurt the root system, and they didn't produce any nodules. So even though the plant's growing good, most people don't put nitrogen fertilizer down with their peas, and now there's not going to be enough nitrogen to fill the pea pods that are there. And we were able to help one, you know, we top-dressed nitrogen onto that field, and the yield came back to where it should be. But we could tell you know, there was no nodules, so in the undamaged part of the field, there was beautiful nodules, so they had lots of nitrogen. And so we made it up, and, and the... And the, and the only maybe one sprayer width along the, the edge of the field was damaged that that there was lost and but before that there was probably 35 acres that was damaged and ended up with only about five acres of real damage now there was a cost of putting the nitrogen on but you know bringing the field back and, and getting that yield and having healthy plants if you don't have healthy plants a lot of times the weed control doesn't work as well if the plants are sick because most modern herbicides need really good crop competition for it to work well. You know, uh, glyphosate and, and uh, glyphosate, uh, you know, maybe not so much, but a lot of the other chemicals need good crop competition. So if the crop isn't growing good, all of a sudden it becomes a bunch of other weed issues. So future issues are something else we look for as well that 
you know, if the area's got 100% loss in, you know, and and there's nothing there to keep the weeds from getting out of control and you can't go in and spray it again, you know, that's something that has to be addressed in the future as well. So once the cause of damage has been determined, it's time to discuss the issue with the farmer or the spray operator. Uh, is that difficult at times? Well, usually uh, somebody's already talked to the neighbor that it's happened to. They said, okay, either, you know, get they phone their insurance company up and the insurance company hires me to come out and have a look at things. Or, you know, they, maybe they get their lawyers involved if they're not in a good relationship with their neighbor. And uh, a lot of times when I go and look in the field, I'll have both farmers come. I have a side-by-side, and we both ride around. I take both people out if they're amicable to it, and and we look, and I I give them an education on what to look for. Mm -hmm. A lot of times people don't realize, you know, certain things that they don't realize are caused by spray drift, and and they didn't realize that. that. So usually they get a pretty good education from, you know, what I, I, I get them that information and then when the other guy that the guy that did the drifting is now usually much more it's like oh okay now i see what you're pointing at that shadow effect and it points back to where it came from and different things and, and it gives them a pretty good understanding and hopefully i do a good enough job and, and it happens lots of people that i went out and did stuff for and maybe they were on the other side but they phone me when they have their next complaint because i did a fair job yeah George Luco is a forensic agrologist. We're talking about spray drift damage on crops. George, another option during this uh, whole process is collecting samples of some of the damaged plants and sending them, them away to determine what the cause is. But uh, I understand that's pretty expensive. And we'll send those away to an independent third-party lab with the confirmation of whatever it is. But they're fairly expensive to do, so... It's like $300 a chemical you test for. So if you know you got glyphosate drifted on you, well, we'll test for glyphosate, but I'm not going to send away tests for 10 different things because that's really expensive. And uh, then a couple of other little points. Uh, Pest Management Regulatory Agency under Health Canada, they can come out and do an investigation as well. But their thing is just seeing if the label directions were followed. That's their limitation. And they'll tell you to hire a forensic agrologist as well. And then Saskatchewan's got a provincial pesticide licensing officer. Same thing. They're limited to what they do is whether it was applied properly. And a lot of times it's ground versus aerial application. So sometimes you have to stay full further distance away from things with aerial application than you do with a ground rig. So basically they're only testing if things were applied properly. PMRA will send away stuff to their lab, but it takes like 10 months for you to get results back. And then they'll take samples and send them away. But the Saskatchewan one, they'll send them away for a visual analysis only. So if you're ending up going to court, the visual analysis isn't as good as a third-party lab test. For most people, they don't realize is if there's, if there's going to be an insurance claim, you know, someone drifted onto somebody else, they usually have a $500 deductible with a ground operator. You know, if you got drifted on, you need to hand the person that drifted on you a demand letter to get the insurance company to kick in. They don't do anything until there's a demand. Mm-hmm. So if you if you don't tell anybody that or don't give a piece of paper to them saying I've got damage, they don't investigate it. It's up to you to investigate it yourself. Where a lot of times, if they'll send somebody like me out to to look at it, but if you don't put a demand letter in, it's really important. 
and it can be just simple. It's like, I got damage on my quarter here from this quarter, and this is the person who did it. Well, farming is expensive, and it could get even more expensive in a real big hurry. So uh, being cautious and taking the time to think about the wind's direction and the damage can be done can prevent a lot of heartache. Well, I, I teach the pesticide applicator course for a SAS Polytechnic as well. And, and farmers aren't required to have that course, but commercial operators are, and people that work in cities spraying parks and that type of stuff are required to have it in industrial areas. And we see a lot of farmers now sending their hired men to take the course just to give them some extra training on what they should be doing while they're out there. And it's a really good course. It's not expensive, and it can be taken online. Uh, But we do do class things, but usually it's in March or April. And at that time, farms are usually getting pretty busy. But uh, it's a great course, um, and uh, you learn a lot about, you know, the safety precautions and that type of stuff. You know, I, I had somebody tell me once that the, the farmer oversprayed them and it drifted onto them, and they got them to stop spraying because it was drifting in the yard, but nobody said, told them that they should probably go rinse off. And so he says, that'd be the first thing. He's like, my God, I, I, I hit you with spray drift. Well, we need to get you clean. I'll stop spraying. That's not a problem. But, you know, we need to make sure you don't get harmed. You know, you know, that's the first thing we teach people in the, the pesticide applicators. Don't harm yourself. Don't harm the environment. Don't harm the neighbors. And uh, in the environments, certain spray things, there's a reason why they need to be incorporated because they have a high chance of running off into a, a slough or, or water, an open body of water, and then they can that can go downstream. And it can harm aquatic life, and, and some chemicals are very, very uh, deadly to aquatic life. They're not deadly very much to terrestrial life, but to, to water life. So all of a sudden, you kill a whole stream and get a bunch of dead fish or bugs or, or, or vegetation in there, which is not a good thing for the environment. There are some programs like driftwatch.org out of Purdue University. Saskatchewan is part of that network. Maybe just explain how that works. I have pumpkins at home, and so I make sure I have that on the map so people know we have pumpkins because pumpkins are susceptible to spray drift. But it also lists, uh, part of the Driftwatch thing is Bee Watch, and most uh, and the, the provincial uh, beekeepers association has been very good about getting most of their members to use it so you know where the beehives are too so if you're spraying an insecticide you can find who's got uh, hives where they are and if you tell a beekeeper they'll cover them for the day and the bees just don't go out but they don't they don't go when it's cloudy so you cover them it's not a big deal but now the bees aren't getting poisoned by the insecticide either so if there's a outbreak of wheat midge or something like that where you're spraying for an insecticide you can find out because a lot of times you don't know where these beehives are because they kind of put them in sheltered areas and uh, you don't even know they're right next door to you sometimes if you're interested in contacting a certified forensic agrologist you can find a list on the saskatchewan institute of agrologists website after the break curtis posniak the new director of the crop development center at the university of saskatchewan he talks about his new role and important new crop varieties research going on at cdc 
digging into the topics that matter to you. The AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. Welcome back. My guest is Curtis Posniak, the new director of the University of Saskatchewan Crop Development Centre. Uh, Curtis, first of all, congratulations on this new position. And maybe tell us a little bit about how your role is going to change in light of these uh, new responsibilities. So my appointment to the Crop Development Centre is a 30% appointment. So I still get to maintain all of my activity in, in wheat breeding. So I'll be focusing on the uh, research side, but taking on the additional responsibilities of, of managing the uh, quite productive uh, breeding programs and pathology groups at the CDC. And I think I see the director more as a facilitator of research and the breeding programs, so managing relationships with a large number of, of funders and partners, uh, making sure that that's working well, as well as, you know, what are the gaps that, that we need to fill and, and, and moving those portfolios forward. The CDC is a pretty close-knit group and, um, uh, you know, we do have a number of funders and partners that each of our individual programs interact with probably on a weekly basis. And uh, But certainly what the director will need to do is, you know, facilitate those interactions and to make sure those interactions are, are win-win for the CDC as well as all of our partners. Now, seed royalties continues to be an important issue in the ag sector. There were two proposals on the table, trailing and endpoint royalties, and a majority of farm groups uh, didn't support those two proposals. And now the seed industry has put forward its own pilot project. So where does the CDC stand on all of this? There's certainly been a lot of discussions over the last couple of years on um, alternate funding models for breeding programs. And, you know, the CDC is actually quite unique. We have a number of breeding programs ranging from, you know, cereal crops, pulses, flax, forages, and so on. So each of those crops has, you know, in their own way, different uh, funding groups, different funding models. Um, And so I think, you know, already the CDC is an excellent example of what I like to call a... uh, public-private producer partnership and really with balanced portfolios. And, you know, so there's been, you know, quite a bit of discussion uh, uh, around um, different funding models. And and Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada was doing some consultations with the industry uh, to see what that should look like. Uh, What is it? SVUA model has been proposed, and and there's a a trial run of that actually running uh, right now with some varieties that are fitting into that portfolio of endpoint royalty. So we're at the CDC sort of interested to see how that all plays out this year, given that it's a test run, and then really assess how well that's worked and where it could fit uh, within each of our different uh, crop portfolios. So that's sort of the role we're taking. We're here for information and looking at how we might be able to move that forward within the context of our breeding programs. But recognizing it is a balanced portfolio, we have a number of funders and, you know, we need to be cognizant of the industry as a whole, what they're looking for in terms of funding the CDC. With the varieties that uh, have come through the CDC, it's impressive the number of new varieties over the years. Uh, What do you attribute to that? Is it research? Uh, Is it the support from the industry? How do you account for the great success that CDC has had? Well, I, I think it's I think it's a whole bunch of things. I mean, with well over 450 varieties in the last 50 odd years, it's been remarkable success. It's a, a a combination of a whole bunch of things. The first is the people, the people that we have, the faculty, the researchers, 
uh, right down to the technical staff that are out in the field doing our research uh, and collecting data to support variety development. Over time, I think there's been a, a stabilizing of that. We have the infrastructure we need. We have good people. And that comes from strong funding support over a period of time. So being able to have the resources to maintain the infrastructure, build the infrastructure, hire the best quality people that, that we have has really, I think, led to our success. It's sort of that package of people, funding, vision of the scientists that's really led to that success. Curtis Posniak is a wheat breeder at the University of Saskatchewan. Uh, Curtis, there are a number of research tools at your disposal, uh, including gene editing or CRISPR technology. And it seems this holds great promise for the future, but at this point it's just being used really on a limited basis. Why is that? There's a number of technologies that have been evolving over the last number of years, and certainly my research program has been at the forefront at moving some of those forward uh, around genomics technology and using knowledge of the DNA to guide breeding. I think that's certainly a technology that all programs are using at, at the Crop Development Centre. Specifically, as it relates to gene editing technology, I think, again, we're, we're taking a sort of a wait-and-see approach with uh, actually implementing that in the context of breeding. You know, there's still some discomfort, let's say, in, in some parts of the world about using that technology. And, and for some crop kinds where we're exporting products to those countries, it, it's still a very, very sensitive issue. But we do use CRISPR technology from time to time for research purposes. And and how we do that is we will, for example, find a, a gene in the genome of wheat, and we don't really know what it does. We think it might be involved in, let's say, disease resistance. So we can actually use gene editing to tweak that gene and see what the response is on disease. Does it make the disease resistance better? Does it make it worse? So it's a very powerful tool, actually, for research. So although we may not be implementing it in the context of breeding per se, uh, we are using the technology to understand genetics to help guide the breeding. COVID-19, how has that impacted your specific research and have you been able to do most of what you wanted to do? Um, Have there been any limitations? I think like everyone, it's been a challenging time. The university did shut down uh, its doors uh, to students and moving classes online to support students and likewise we were able to send our technical staff home and encourage them to do uh, uh, their activities from home. Um, So in the case of my program we've been very fortunate to get some approval from the university to bring staff back for planting and spraying, uh, maintaining the plots certainly wasn't the full staff complement, but we were able to get people back and were able to plant a significant part of our breeding program. You know, planting is the easy part. <laughs> I think most farmers would agree that uh, um, harvest is probably the most challenging part. Um, you know, it takes longer. We're dealing with uh, uh, weather and all sorts of things that can make harvest more difficult. So there's certainly going to be an impact. Things are slower, but we're trying our best under the circumstances and and making sure that we can keep our people safe and still be able to collect data and move forward at least the critical parts of the breeding program. Curtis Posniak is a wheat breeder and the newly hired director of the University of Saskatchewan's Crop Development Centre. He will be serving a five-year term.
It's time for the Agriculture News Roundup for the week of June 22, 2020. Saskatchewan pulse growers welcomed federal support for a new processing plant in Winnipeg. Pulse Growers Past Chair Lee Moat says the federal government will invest $100 million in the new Merit Functional Food location. He said more people are eating plant-based protein, and the processing facility for peas and canola will also benefit farmers. The Mexican government announced it would resume sending farm workers to Canada after securing promises for more inspections and oversight to curb outbreaks of COVID-19. Three Mexican men died, and hundreds more have become ill with COVID-19 in recent weeks on farms across the country. The situation led Mexico to temporarily stop allowing workers to leave for Canada, but the Mexican government says it's now struck a deal with the federal Liberal government that will lead to improvements in the temporary foreign worker program. Canadian Federation of Agriculture said that it was saddened by the recent deaths of those Mexican farm workers. CFA President Mary Robinson said the pandemic exposed new vulnerabilities and emphasized the need to take a closer look at the regulations so circumstances can be addressed quickly. CFIA encouraged farm employers to follow public health guidelines, continually communicate with workers, and where called for, encourage all workers to be tested. A national dairy cattle traceability program will be kicking in. Dairy Trace will provide a single common framework for dairy farmers to track animal identity and movements. Advisory Committee Chair Gert Schreiber said providing protection and peace of mind to consumers is vital. Under the federal regulations, anyone who owns or has possession, care or control of dairy cattle must report animal identity, movement, location and custodianship information. And a new slate of directors will guide Cereals Canada through its amalgamation with the Canadian International Grains Institute. The board of directors elected Todd Hames with Alberta Wheat as its chair. The board includes representatives from other provincial wheat and barley groups and agricultural companies. The next major step of the amalgamation process is the appointment of a CEO. And Canadian Western Agribition hosted its first ever virtual annual general meeting. CWA President Chris Lees and CEO Chris Lane discussed the 2019 show and financial results. CWA membership also elected their board of directors. The AgriPod is produced by Colby Heiss with host and CJVR Agriculture Director Alice McFarlane and is a division of the Jim Patterson Broadcast Group. Available wherever you find your favorite podcast and at farmnewsnow.com.